Chapter thirty eight of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter thirty eight. The day now arrived which Ellis reluctantly, yet firmly, destined for her new and hazardous essay. Resolute in her plan, she felt the extreme importance of attaining courage and calmness for its execution. She shut herself up in her apartment, and gave the most positive injunctions to the milliners that no one should be admitted. The looks of Harleigh, as he had quitted her room, had told her that this precaution would not be superfluous, and, accordingly, he came, but was refused entrance. He wrote, but his letters were returned unread. His efforts to break served but to fix her purpose. She saw the expectations that he would feed from any concession, and potent as had hitherto been her objection to the scheme, they all subsided, in preference to exciting, or passively permitting, any doubts of the steadiness of her rejection. Still, however, she could not practice. Her voice and her fingers were infected by that agitation of her mind, and she could neither sing nor play. She could only hope that, at the moment of performance, the positive necessity of exertion would bring with it, as so often is its effect, the powers which it requires. The tardiness of her resolution caused, however, such an accumulation of business, not only for her thoughts, but for her time from the indispensable arrangements of her attire, that scarcely a moment remained either for the relief or the anxieties of rumination. She set off, therefore, with tolerable, though forced, composure, for the rooms in the carriage of Miss Arb. That lady, once again, choosing to assume the character of her patroness, since as such she could claim the merit of introducing her to the public, through an obligation to her own new favourite, M. Vinstriegel. Upon stopping at the hotel, in which the concert was to be held, a strange figure, with something foreign in his appearance, twice crossed before the chariot, with a menacing air, as if purposing to impede her passage. Easily startled, she feared descending from the carriage, when Harley, who was watching, though dreading her arrival, came in sight, and offered her his hand. She declined it, but, seeing the intruder retreat abruptly into the surrounding crowd of spectators, she alighted and entered the hotel. Pained at once, and charmed by the striking elegance of her appearance, and the air of gentle dignity which showed such attire to be familiar to her, Harleigh felt irresistibly attracted to follow her, and once more plead his cause. "'Here, hear me!' he cried, in a low but touching voice. "'One moment, hear me! I supplicate, I conjure you! Still it is not too late to avert this blow! Indisposi indisposition cannot be disputed, or, if doubted, of what moment would be the suspicion, if once, generously, trustingly, you relinquish this cruel plan!' He spoke in a whisper, yet with an impetuosity that alarmed, as much as his distress affected her. But when she turned towards him, to call upon his forbearance, 
she perceived immediately at his side, the person who had already disconcerted her. She drew hastily back, and he brushed quickly past, looking round, nevertheless, and evidently and anxiously marking her. Startled, uneasy, she involuntarily stopped, but was relieved by the approach of one of the doorkeepers, to the person in question, who haughtily flung at him a ticket, and was passing on, but who was told that he could not enter the concert-room in a slouched hat. A sort of attendant, or humble friend, who accompanied him, then said, in broken English, that the poor gentleman only came to divert himself by seeing the company, and would disturb nobody, for he was deaf and dumb, and very inoffensive. Reassured by this account, Ellis again advanced, and was met by Mr. Vinstriegel, who had given instructions to be called upon her arrival, and who now, telling her that it was late, and that the concert was immediately to be opened, handed her to the orchestra. She insisted upon seating herself behind a violoncello player, and as much out of sight as possible, till necessity must, of course, bring her forward. From her dislike to being seen, her eyes seemed riveted upon the music-paper which she held in her hand, but of which, far from studying the characters, she could not read a note. She received, with silent civility, the compliments of M. Vinstriegel, and those of his band, who could approach her. But her calmness, and what she had thought her determined courage, had been so shaken by personal alarm, and by the agitated supplications of Harleigh, that she could recover them no more. His desponding look, when he found her inexorable, pursued her, and the foreign clothing and foreign servant of the man who, though deaf and dumb, had so marked and fixed her, rested upon her imagination, with a thousand vague fears and conjectures. In this shattered state of nerves the sound of many instruments, loud, however harmonious, so immediately close to her ears, made her start, as if electrified, when the full band struck up the overture, and involuntarily raised her eyes. The strong lights dazzled them, yet prevented her not from perceiving that the deaf and dumb man had planted himself exactly opposite to the place, which, by the disposition of the harp, was evidently prepared for her reception. Her alarm augmented. Was he watching her from mere common curiosity, or had he any latent motive or purpose? His dress and figure were equally remarkable. He was wrapped in a large scarlet coat, which hung loosely over his shoulders, and was open at the breast, to display a brilliant waistcoat of coloured and spangled embroidery. He had a small but slouched hat, which he had refused to take off, that covered his forehead and eyebrows and shaded his eyes, and a cravat of enormous bulk encircled his chin, and enveloped not alone his ears, but his mouth. Nothing was visible but his nose, which was singularly long and pointed. The whole of his habiliment seemed a foreign manufacture, but his air had something in it that was wild and uncouth, and his head was continually in motion. To the trembling Ellis, it now seemed but a moment before she was summoned to her place, though four pieces were first performed. M. Vinstriegel would have handed her down the steps, 
she declined his aid, hoping to pass less observed alone. But the moment that she rose, and became visible, a violent clapping was begun by Sir Lyle Sycamore, and seconded by every man present. What is new, of almost any description, is sure to be well received by the public. But when novelty is united with peculiar attractions, admiration becomes enthusiasm, and applause is nearly clamour. Such, upon the beholders, was the effect produced by the beauty, the youth, the elegance, and the timidity of Ellis. Even her attire, which, from the bright pink sarcenet, purchased by Miss Arb, she had changed into plain white satin, with ornaments of which the simplicity showed as much taste as modesty, contributed to the interest which she inspired. It was suited to the style of her beauty, which was Grecian, and it seemed equally to assimilate with the character of her mind, to those who, judging it from the fine expression of her countenance, conceived it to be pure and noble. The assembly appeared with one opinion to admire her, and with one wish to give her encouragement. But, unused to being an object of tumultuous delight, the effect produced by such transports was the reverse of their intention. And Ellis, ashamed, embarrassed, confused, lost the recollection, that custom demanded that she should postpone her acknowledgments till she arrived at her post. She stopped, but in raising her eyes, as she attempted to curtsy, she was struck with the sight of her deaf and dumb tormentor, who, in agitated watchfulness, was standing up to see her descend, and whose face, from the full light to which he was exposed, she now saw to be masked, while she discerned in his hand the glitter of steel. An horrible surmise occurred that it was Eleanor disguised, and Eleanor come to perpetrate the bloody deed of suicide. Agonized with terror at the idea, she would have uttered a cry, but, shaken and dismayed, her voice refused to obey her. Her eyes became dim, her tottering feet would no longer support her, her complexion wore the pallid hue of death, and she sunk motionless on the floor. In an instant all admiring acclamation subsided into tender pity, and not a sound was heard in the assembly while in the orchestra all was commotion, for Harleigh no sooner saw the fall, and that the whole band was in movement, to offer aid, than, springing from his place, he overcame every obstacle, to force a passage to the spot where the pale Ellis was lying. There, with an air of command, that seemed the offspring of rightful authority, he charged every one to stand back, and give her air desired M. Vinstriegel to summon some female to her aid, and, snatching from him a phial of salts, which he was attempting to administer, was greatly bending down with them himself, when he perceived that she was already reviving. But the instant that he had raised her, what was his consternation and horror, to hear a voice from the assembly call out, "'Turn, Harley, turn, and see thy willing martyr!' Behold, perfidious Ellis, behold thy victim! Instantly, though with agony, he quitted the sinking Ellis to dart forward. The large wrapping-coat, the half-mask, the slouched hat, and embroidered waistcoat had rapidly been thrown aside, 
and Eleanor appeared in deep mourning, her long hair, wholly unornamented, hanging loosely down her shoulders. Her complexion was wan, her eyes were fierce rather than bright, and her hair was wild and menacing. "'Oh, Harleigh! Adored Harleigh!' she cried, as he flew to catch her desperate hand. But he was not in time, for, in uttering his name, she plunged a dagger into her breast. The blood gushed out in torrents, while, with a smile of triumph and eyes of idolizing love, she dropped into his arms, and, clinging round him, feebly articulated, "'Here let me end! Accept the oblation, the just tribute, of these dear, delicious last moments!' Almost petrified with horror, he could with difficulty support either her or himself. Yet his presence of mind was sooner useful than that of any on the company, the ladies of which were hiding their faces, or running away, and the men, though all eagerly crowding to the spot of this tremendous event, approaching rather as spectators of some public exhibition, than as actors in a scene of humanity. Harleigh called upon them to fly instantly for a surgeon, demanded an armchair for the bleeding Eleanor, and earnestly charged some of the ladies to come to her aid. Selina, who had made one continued scream resound through the apartment, from the moment that her sister discovered herself, rapidly obeyed the summons, with Ireton, who, being unable to detain, accompanied her. Mrs. Maple, thunderstruck by the apparition of her niece, scandalized by her disguise, and wholly unsuspicious of her purpose, though sure of some extravagance, had pretended sudden indisposition, to escape the shame of witnessing her disgrace. But ere she could get away, the wound was inflicted, and the public voice, which alone she valued, forced her to return. A surgeon of eminence, who was accidentally in the assembly, desired the company to make way, declaring no removal to be practicable, till he should have stopped the effusion of blood. The concert was immediately broken up, the assembly, though curious and unwilling, dispersed, and the apparatus for dressing the wound was speedily at hand, but to no purpose. Eleanor would not suffer the approach of the surgeon, would not hear of any operation or examination, would not receive any assistance. Looks of fiery disdain were the only answers that she bestowed to the pleadings of Mrs. Maple, the shrieks of Selina, the remonstrances of the surgeon, and the entreaties of every other. Even to the supplications of Harleigh she was immovable, though still she fondly clung to him, uttering from time to time, Long, long wished-for moment! Welcome, thrice welcome to my wearied soul! The shock of Harleigh was unspeakable, and it was aggravated by almost indignant exhortations, ejaculated from nearly every person present, that he would snatch the self-devoted enthusiast from this untimely end by returning her heroic tenderness. Mrs. Maple was now covered with shame, from apprehension that this conduct might be imputed either to any precepts or any neglect of her own. "'My poor niece is quite light-headed, Mr. Harleigh,' she cried, "'and knows not what she says.' 
Fury started into the eyes of Elinor as she caught these words, and neither prayers nor supplications could silence or quiet her. "'No, Mrs. Maple, no!' she cried. "'I am not light-headed. I never so perfectly knew what I said, for I never so perfectly spoke what I thought. Is it not time, even yet, to have done with the puerile trammels of prejudice? Yes, here I cast them to the winds, and, in the dauntless hour of willing death, I proclaim my sovereign contempt of the whole race of mankind, of its cowardly subterfuges, its mean assimilations, its heartless subtleties. Here, in the sublime act of voluntary self-extinction, I exult to declare my adoration of thee, of thee alone, Albert Harley, of thee and of thy haughty, matchless virtues. Gasping for breath, she leant, half motionless, yet smiling, and with looks of transport, upon the shoulder of Harley, who, ashamed in the midst of his concern, at his own situation, thus publicly avowed as the object of this desperate act, earnestly wished to retreat from the gazers and remarkers, with whom he shared the notice and the wonder excited by Elinor. But her danger was too eminent, and the scene was too critical, to suffer self to predominate. Gently, therefore, and with tenderness, he continued to support her, carefully forbearing either to irritate her enthusiasm, or to excite her spirit of controversy, by uttering, at such a crisis, the exhortations to which his mind and his principles pointed, or even to soothe her feeling too tenderly, lest misrepresentation should be mischievous, either with herself or with others. The surgeon declared that, if the wound were not dressed without delay, no human efforts could save her life. "'My life! Save my life!' cried Elinor, reviving from indignation. "'Do you believe me so ignoble as to come hither to display the ensigns of death, but as scare crows, to frighten lookers on to court me to life? No! For what should I live? To see the hand of scorn point at me? No! 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 I come to die! I bleed to die! And now, even now, I talk to die! To die! Oh, Albert Harley, for thee! Dost thou sigh, Harley? Do I hear thee sigh? Oh, Harley, generous Harley, for me is it thou sighest? Deeply oppressed. Eleanor, he answered, you make me indeed wretched. Ebb out then, O oh life, cried she, in this ecstatic moment. Harley no longer is utterly insensible. Well, I have followed my heart's beating impulse. Harley, O oh noble Harley. Spent by speech and loss of blood, she fainted. Harley eagerly whispered Mrs. Maple to desire that the surgeon would snatch this opportunity for examining, and, if possible, dressing the wound. This, accordingly, was done, all who were not of some use retiring. Harley himself, deeply interested in the event, only retreated to a distant corner, held back by discretion, honour, and delicacy, from approaching the spot to which his wishes tended. The surgeon pronounced that the wound was not in its nature mortal, though the exertions and emotions which had succeeded it gave it a character of danger 
that demanded the extremest attention, and most perfect tranquillity. The satisfaction with which Harleigh heard the first part of this sentence, though it could not be counterbalanced, was cruelly checked by its conclusion. He severely felt the part that he seemed called upon to act, and had a consciousness, that was dreadful to himself, of his powers, if upon her tranquillity alone depended her preservation. She soon recovered from her fainting fit, though she was too much weakened and exhausted, both in body and spirits, to be as soon restored to her native energies. The moment, therefore, seemed favourable for her removal. But whither? Lewes was too distant. Mrs. Maple, therefore, was obliged to apply for a lodging in the hotel, to which, with the assiduous aid of Harleigh, Elinor, after innumerable difficulties, and nearly by force, was conveyed. The last to quit the apartment in which this bloody scene had been performed was Ellis, who felt restored by fright for another, to the strength of which she had been robbed by a fright for herself. Her sufferings, indeed, for Elinor, her grief, her horror, had set self wholly aside, and made her forget all by which, but the moment before, she had been completely absorbed. She durst not approach, yet could not endure to retreat. She remained alone in the orchestra, from which all the band had been dismissed. She looked not once at Harleigh, nor did Harleigh once dare turn her way. In the shock of this scene, she thought it would be her duty to see him no more, for though she was unassailed by remorse, since unimpeached by self-reproach, for when had she wilfully, or even negligently, excited jealousy, still she could not escape the inexpressible shock of knowing herself the cause, though not, like Harleigh, the object, of this dreadful deed. When Elinor, however, was gone, she desired to hurry to her lodgings. Miss Arbe had forgotten, or neglected her, and she had no carriage ordered. But the terrific magnitude of the recent event divested minor difficulties of their usual powers of giving disturbance. Tis only when we are spared great calamities that we are deeply affected by small circumstances. The pressing around her, whether of avowed or discreet admirers, the buzz of mingled compliments, propositions, interrogatories, or entreaties, which, at another time, would have embarrassed and distressed her, now scarcely reached her ears, and found no place in her attention, and she quietly applied for a maidservant of the hotel, leaning upon whose arm she reached, sad, shaken, and agitated, the house of Miss Matson. Before she would even attempt to go to rest, she sent a note of inquiry to Mr. Naird, the surgeon, whom she had seen at Mrs. Maple's. His answer was consonant to what he had already pronounced to Harleigh. End of chapter 38 Recording by Roxana Nazari